I am a great boss because I'm not the boss. I don't tell them when to show up. They don't tell me when to show up. We are going to empty our own trash. We're going to clean our own bathrooms. We're going to sweep our own floors. Are you okay with that? They're not above picking and packing boxes, sorting through inventory. You really need the, the person that's just willing to get done. My name is Kelly Martin, and you are listening to the seventh episode of Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. This podcast is all about the ins and outs of owning a company. Everything from marketing on social media to doing the hiring and firing. With the help of some of America's brightest entrepreneurs, we discover the do's and what not to do's of running a business. In this episode, we're discussing how to invest in your most valuable asset, your employees. Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. If you could design the perfect work environment, what would it look like? Maybe it would include a creche or a complimentary gourmet lunch. Maybe just a daily fruit basket and decent coffee. Some would love nothing more than to drop into the office barbershop for a quick trim before that two o'clock meeting or take advantage of their free weekly massage. Me? I'd like a hammock for a midday nap, but I'm not too sure what my colleagues would think of my snoring. I didn't make these perks up. They're all extras that one company or another actually provides. The more cynical of you would say they're a trick, a simple way of stopping you from leaving the office. But actually, evidence shows that benefits like these do make employees happier, and as a result, more productive. But what about when you're not a Silicon Valley tech giant, but a startup, and you're not only unable to afford pension plans and health insurance, but even buying a new foosball table is a bit of a stretch. When you're starting out, how do you go about attracting and retaining employees and showing them they're actually valued? Let's ask Diana and Jean. They're co-founders of The Groomsman Suit, a Chicago-based company that makes affordable suits and tuxedos for weddings. They're not too worried about the Googles of this world giving away free haircuts. They insist there are other ways to invest in your employees when you're on a budget. You know, I think we do a good, good job. I'd love for us to really develop a plan for professional development over the next year. Uh, because we've been growing so fast, it's sort of been like, hang on to your pants. But in that process, there is a lot of natural professional development that happens just based on day-to-day needing to get things done and trusting our team to do them. And so I think we make investments in our staff every day by spending time with them to learn about things, to do new things together, to, you know, we really rely on them to give us feedback. It's not Gene and I managing top down. We're really in it all together day in and day out. And we lean on our team um, to make critical decisions. So in a way, that's really obviously empowering and rewarding for them. They feel like they are the experts in their fields, and they are. And as they sort of develop expertise in certain verticals of the business, we will work on getting them better training. We send them to various workshops, you know, whether it's like a customer support like on different technology that we're using. We use Zendesk for our customer service and we will 
make sure that Katie gets to go to a day-long workshop here in Chicago when they're here and doing some training. It's something that we are, you know, we're, we want to do a little bit more formally, but we've gotten so lucky. And for other people out there starting businesses, it's really scary to say, I'm going to give up a lot financially, you know, of the money coming in to hire somebody. And that salary could be really low to the person. You know, you're, it's a huge amount for you, for the business, because mm-hmm. you're starting a company, but you're looking to maximize the quality of person that you're going to hire and what you're going to get out of that. But it's so essential to be able to hand off things that you don't need to be doing to grow the business. So it's it's definitely a tipping point. We got so lucky with, when we moved to Chicago, it was still just the two of us, packing orders, doing all the customer service, the social media. I mean, it was just constant craziness for us. And we uh, reached out to just friends that lived here and said, hey, do you guys know anybody that's looking for part-time? You know, a few hours a week just to help us pick and pack, make boxes and pack orders. And so... In the beginning, it's the the most important skills that you can hire in the beginning is just people that are willing to do whatever you need. You know, they're not above picking and packing boxes, sorting through inventory. You really need the, the person that's just willing to get done. And that's what we were lucky enough to find. And our second hire was actually one of the first few weddings that we, the bride from one of the first few weddings that we outfitted while we were in New York. So she lived in Chicago and we connected with her. And so what's better than having an actual customer who went through the experience for ordering with us, had a great time. And then we, you know, she evolved from part-time to full-time now as well. So it's good to start to, if you can, start a little bit slow, vet the people out and make sure they're right for your business and not actually adding to your workload or stress level. And then grow slowly, continue to add people part-time and yeah. Get them in the loop. And I think for two, for us as well, it, when it comes to like managing our team and creating a good workplace environment, we are, you know, customer service is critical to our business. And if our mm-hmm. team is not enjoying their job and happy at work, it's nearly impossible for them to treat our customers with kindness and, and excellent support. And so you know, there are definitely moments where you have tough customer conversations or experiences, and we we really work hard to provide our team with the support and resources they need to be successful. But, but in general, too, just we want them to love their job, and we want them to love coming to work every day. We actually have an open vacation policy where our employees can, you know, take whatever time they need, and it's amazing. Nobody abuses that. When they, when they go on vacation, they still are checking in. They're still working and we're like, no, you really should take some time <laughs> off. But everybody is flexibility sort of, is so important. Yeah. And trust, you know, mm-hmm. we, tr- we trust them. We, Gene and I had to be in New York last week and they handled everything. And so yeah. it was, it was awesome. A huge sense of relief to have colleagues that are just as good, if not better, at doing some of the day-to-day things that you are. So loving your job is all good and well, but you look at the huge companies of this world, many of whom I'm sure have big offices in Chicago where you are, and they have rooftop gardens, free lunches, Mm -hmm. not to mention bigger salaries. Do you ever think, we can't compete with these guys? We can't compete necessarily with the amenities, but where we crush them is the ability to for our employees to see the impact that they make every day Mm -hmm. 
in our trajectory. You know, that is what is so rewarding to what we're doing. And that's why we find people who find fulfillment in really making a difference in their job. If we had people that just were looking to collect a paycheck, come in, punch in and punch out, they would not be the right candidates for us. But our team loves seeing the efforts, you know, their efforts realized. I mean, everything from... Everybody's so impactful. Yeah. And you don't get that in a bigger company. You know, you're working on a much smaller facet of a large corporation. And whether the project you're working on or not comes to life, like you really have no control over that. And so that's what is incredibly rewarding and where, you know, that beats any sort of pizza lunch. You said pizza lunch with such venom there, Diana. Pizza lunch. <laughs> pizza lunch. What, what do you have against pizza lunches? Well, we order like poke it's here. A cheap, it's a cheap, uh, it's that's a cheap, a cheap way lunch, Tom. I mean, <laughs> treat your employees better. Pizza's got one of the best margins in the food industry. <laughs> yeah, unlike the fashion industry, for instance. Yeah, that's right. Before I spoke to our entrepreneurs, I always thought professional development was just something companies went on about all the time. A sort of vague assurance that you wouldn't be working in the mailroom for the rest of your career. But it turns out that it's the most valuable thing Diana and Jean feel they can offer to their employees. And it's more than about sending them on courses and workshops. They're determined to empower everyone in the business to take part in critical decisions, since they believe that's the best way to, well, develop professionally. Diana and Jean aren't the only ones to put so much emphasis on professional development. Take Liz. She's founder of Boston-based business Artlifting, a company that supplies artwork that was created by artists who are homeless or living with disabilities. As a startup, she has no choice but to use the social aspects of Artlifting and the prospects of faster professional growth to incentivize her employees. But that doesn't mean she doesn't aspire to offer more tangible benefits, like higher salaries and more vacation days later along the line. You should invest in employees um, throughout the company growth cycle. Um, Obviously, when you're bootstrapping, you don't have the financial resources to invest in employees, but you can invest in them through professional development and giving much more responsibility than they would get at a similar position. So I have been really thoughtful in investing in employees through culture, professional development, and really trusting them to give a large amount of responsibility even at young ages. So that's been a reason for employees to come to art lifting, even though, you know, especially at the beginning, we couldn't compete in terms of salary with huge corporations. So when you are bootstrapping, when you're a small company, what are things you can do that, that cost no money? So there are many things. I mean, one is just attitude, making sure the employees feel super pumped and passionate about what you're doing. So like when they come in the morning, being super excited to see them and really curious, always willing to try new things. Another is like, very specific to me, but I used to be a sailing coach. So for free, I could take the team out for sales a few times a year. So it was a big deal to them. But I think everyone has their own individual passion, and they could include others in it. And it could be little or no cost and have a huge impact on culture. Do you ever sort of reach the point where 
culture isn't enough. So do you find that people sometimes when they settle down and, and get mortgages, they have no other choice but to sort of leave for, for bigger salaries? Certainly early on, our employees were younger without families and without mortgages because they could take that risk at, you know, nine out of 10 startups fail. So not only if a company's bootstrapping or you have a low salary base, but you also don't have a guarantee that the company will exist a year from then. So I think it's inevitable that the risk profile is high for employees at startups. And I'm defining startups as not super funded startups, but of course, you know, there are many quote unquote startups that have 30 million in funding that have much more stable path. I've been really blessed to build art lifting with a really young staff, with people who have that risk profile, but also are full of new ideas and energy. Of course, there's a trade-off to having a new staff with your constantly training, but Many times, young companies don't have an option. Um, so it's, you know, it's not like you're necessarily deciding between, oh, can I have uh, five super seasoned people who have 10 or 20 years experience? It's important to give employees opportunity to grow throughout their position and to, you know, have, we have weekly one-on-ones with the leadership team and team members to learn, well, What are you loving about your job? What are you struggling with? Obviously, in every weekly one-on-one, we don't talk about long-term career growth, but quarterly, we do to see, like, are you on track for what you love to do? If you picture yourself a year from now, do you have a dream of having different aspects of the job? So we try to be mindful of it. Of course, you can't give everyone everything they want, but it's good to be aware of what people want, so you can at least give them aspects of it. Do you find that having a smaller and more adaptable workforce makes you more agile as a startup? As a startup, you're fortunately and unfortunately constantly shifting strategy. You know, you have a hypothesis of this business development strategy could be a game changer for us, and then you do A-B testing and you realize, okay, plan A did not work. What is plan B? So one thing that I know from friends that work at much larger corporations is, you know, with bureaucracy, it's often tough to change. It's like moving a huge cargo ship versus I picture us as like a tiny sailboat that can shift at any moment, which is a real blessing. One thing we've been able to do as a company because we're small is shift business development strategy. So at different times, just sending cold emails to facility heads at corporations has been game changers for us. But then as we've learned over time, well, that works to a point, but then you run out of facilities heads. So since we're a small team, we're able to brainstorm together on, okay, we can get warm intros by doing this strategy, or someone has a wedding that they're going to in Texas next week, how can we get, if they go two days early, how can we get in-person meetings at big corporations there? So we're really able to shift quickly and adapt to what happens to be in people's schedules as well, like a a wedding in different cities. Like whenever a team member's what happens to be in a city, we often will plan BD meetings around that. 
Despite being able to offer your staff as a small company things that big companies can't, does it get to the point where you find that people are expecting perks like free lunches and unlimited vacation? Or do you, do you find that people think there are more important things? Um, our team, since we're a social enterprise, our team is all extremely motivated by what we're doing. So our artists have earned over a million dollars. Many have gone from homelessness to housing. So our team members, you know, come, wake up every day and are psyched to come to work to change those artists' lives and their artists that we know personally. So they're not expecting to work at a company that will give them you know, free lunch or unlimited vacation, for example. And on the unlimited vacation point, actually, when we were creating a vacation policy, I talked to friends who had a few more years of experience with their startups and asked the pros and cons of limited versus unlimited vacation. And several told me that unlimited vacation, people actually took fewer days because they felt guilty because there's, you know, always endless things to do at a startup. And the other con for employees with unlimited vacation is um, when you're leaving, you don't get paid for the vacation days that you didn't take because there isn't a set number. So for that reason, we decided it's actually better for employees to have a set number of vacation days. You feel that unlimited vacation is, is sort of extra pressure masquerading as a perk. Exactly. Yeah. I was like shocked to learn that. But, you know, we decided to do what I felt was best for our employees. Uh, How much vacation do your staff get? So we have 22 days off as a company. Seven of those are national holidays or religious holidays and 15 are vacation days. Oh, that's pretty generous for the U.S., right? Yeah. The U.S. is known for being Uh, pretty stingy with vacation. Uh, Honestly, uh, I think I would love to be able to offer more someday as well. I just think people are way more efficient if they're able to rest and spend time with their family. And I am excited to be at a point someday where we can offer more, be more in line with Europe than America. Okay, great, Liz. Thanks. You should probably mention where you're doing this interview, where you are now in terms of what you provide for your employees. Yeah, right now I'm actually in our maternity room, um, which is not a place I typically hang out in, um, but it's a real blessing. So um, two of my employees had babies in the last six months and they both pump in here. Um, So it's really wonderful to be able to have a maternity room um, and support parents and you know, support our employees as full, well-rounded human beings. We're not defining them by just work. Yeah, that's great. So if you're a a new mother, then go and work for (laughs) Artlifting. You're listening to Making It Work. Coming up. I am a great boss because I'm not the boss. I don't tell them when to show up. They don't tell me when to show up. What's wrong? Or should I be looking for another job? Are we in trouble? Are we okay? And you have to be there to answer those questions with the utmost honesty. And this is the biggest thing. The biggest, biggest, biggest thing. You have to have fun. You could maybe argue that I haven't challenged the entrepreneurs enough on how they compensate their employees. I mean, professional development is great and all, but it's an extremely broad term. And to be honest, almost sounds like a euphemism. 
Attending a workshop is professional development, but so is staying at the office till midnight on an unpaid internship, right? Of course, I'm not suggesting you can't be a happy worker with nothing else but a modest paycheck, a supportive team and a challenging role. But I did want to explore other ways that startups could reward their employees, even if they were short on cash. Let's bring David in. He's owned multiple companies, but his latest venture is Shark Wheel, a California-based outfit that makes wheels designed for rough terrain. He says that back in the day, it was difficult for smaller companies to offer their employees financial incentives. But recent changes in the law mean he can hand out equity in his business with very limited risk. We get onto that a little bit later, but I started by asking him why it is his employees want to work for him. I'm just a joyous, happy person, and they love me. <laughs> <laughs> I think okay, I'm, first I think of I'm, all, here, here's the deal. Go, go. I, I was being sarcastic, somewhat. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I, I am a great boss um, because I'm not the boss. I've always said everybody has their own little fiefdom. Everybody runs their own little kingdom. They are the decision maker in their world. I don't tell them when to show up. They don't tell me when to show up. Nobody does that in our company. Everybody knows what they have to do every day, and they do it themselves to the best of their abilities. Of course, we all communicate with each other all day, every day. But it's one of those things where you get to be the master of your world. That's number one. Number two, and this is the biggest thing, the biggest, biggest, biggest thing. You have to have fun. You cannot have people come in and beat them down or have them do a job where you don't pay attention to them or anything even remotely closely to that. It is a family. You have to be having a good time. They've got to say the eight hours I spend at work is as fun and enjoyable and as important to my life as the eight hours I get to spend with my family before, during, and after that or whatever. I am such a believer in enjoying life and enjoying my job. I preach that constantly and you've heard it a million times and love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. I haven't worked for 15 years. The other 30 I worked because I wasn't enjoying it. I was making a ton of money, but I was not enjoying my life. I was I was not happy. And this time around, I said, if it's not fun, I'm not doing it. Um, and that can sound crass or arrogant or, well, hey, you got to live and you got to make money. And it's like, no, you can make anything fun. You can make shoveling sewage out of the thing enjoyable. You can. You have to work at it, though. It has to be 50% of the what you try to efficiently do in your company. It's not just trying to make more money. It's trying to make it more enjoyable for the employees, a better working atmosphere. And I really don't take that lightly. We have an awesome team because – it's enjoyable. There's candy in the fridge. You know, we spend 30 bucks at the store on, you know, BS stuff and throw it in the fridge and everybody lives like kings for a week. Um, those little things make it nice. And so I'm, I'm all about making it the best place in the world to be, something really enjoyable. Are those little, little perks enough? Yeah. Here's the thing. Okay, so I, I'm – Again, I've had hundreds or thousands of employees. I don't know how many. There's been a lot. An employee would rather have a congratulations go out to the whole company identifying that person as doing a great job than on the side by themselves getting a check for 500 bucks. They would rather everybody know they did a great job. That's free. 
that doesn't cost anything. Glorifying people and saying they do a great job and doing those kind of things, that doesn't cost anything. Those little tiny perks, the stupid cookies. If, if you came into my place and I opened the fridge and every candy bar conceivable to earth and every kind of fun snack was in there, you'd think this is cool, okay? It's not the stupid ping pong table or something like that. It's one of those things where it's like, it's fun to have a little snack. It's fun to have this. It's fun to have that. Well, those little things that don't detract from the day or don't, you know, turn us into slobs, um, they work. They absolutely work. It's all the little things I do that make everybody enjoy their job. I've never had anybody come to me and say, I want more money instead of what I got. It's we love our jobs. And by the way, I'm very transparent about where the company is financially. Everybody knows where we are and how we're doing. And if I can give them a raise, if we're losing money right now, yeah, don't even bother trying. But by being transparent with everybody, we're all in it together. What about things like health insurance? Only when you're big. I mean, it's such a drag on your company. It's such a resource drag. And pay your people well enough where they can pay their own until you can get big enough as a company to do it for them. It's an awesome perk if you can do it. It's one of those, you know, hey, one less thing to think about. I've always been able to do it when my company's got big. I've always been able to offer health plans and stuff like that. Um, Shark Wheel doesn't do it right now just because we're not enough employees. Actually, no, wait. Yeah, we do. Yes, we do. Never mind. Because um, we just recently did it. That's why I was confused. But it's uh, it's awesome if you can do it, but it's so hard to do when you're small because it's such an amazing amount of money in the beginning to put towards things. And it is a perk in that sense. It's like, yeah, you kind of need to pay that on your own in the beginning. I can't pay that part. I can pay your salary, but I can't I can't get to the bennies. Because there are bigger companies, God, especially in California, because there are huge companies that can easily offer those things, do you not find it's hard to compete for good people? No. It's what I said. I think people would rather have a work atmosphere that they enjoy every day than the money. They'll The money is something, and if they got to make enough to pay their insurance or whatever, but if I'm not the guy offering it, but I do offer a really great place to work with the opportunity in front of you, there's the opportunity to get there, I don't, I don't struggle. Again, you know, a startup is a lot like um, – a relationship, you know, there's so much fun in the beginning. There's so much fire and passion and things like that. Old companies that can offer, you know, okay, here's the benefit package we're offering to try and suck you in. It's because it's not fun anymore. It's because it's, look, you're going to get all these great benefits, but it's going to come at some other cost. Look, life and enjoyment of life is worth a lot of money, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. You give people that, they'll forego other things. What's the trend? Where do people generally go if, if they leave? To, to bigger companies that can offer them bigger salaries? I used to be a big company. So when people left me, I don't know where they went. I think they went to similar size competition. But I think what most often happened with me was they would always think, gosh, Dave makes it look so easy. I could do this on my own. And they leave to go start their own. And, you know, I, I think the kind of people that do that, where they look at it and say, gosh, it looks so easy. I could do this myself. 
they generally don't succeed in doing it. They generally end up going back and working for somebody. But because look, you're if you're that type of person, you weren't going to find out you were that person by working for somebody else, learning their system, watching the way they do it, and then go, oh, I'm going to go imitate this. No, it doesn't work. You can't imitate. You have to innovate. That person got there by overcoming many, many, many obstacles and many more to come. If you go out there and try and replicate the system as it exists today, you don't understand what built it, and you won't be able to move and bend and flex with the next change. And that's what the people don't understand. They see it as it is, and they leave to go off on their own. That's probably the biggest one that happens is they go off to do it on their own or their own thing and they don't realize how hard it is to fly. Do you offer employees equity in the business? Absolutely. Um, One of the greatest things that has happened in our world is the existence of what's called crowdfunding by selling shares. Two two or three years ago, it was 100% illegal. Nobody had ever done it. I don't believe it had ever been done. Um, But then all of a sudden they said, look, you can go out to unaccredited individuals, people who have no expertise in investing, and they can buy actual shares in your company and own a piece of you. And you get to set what the price is and you can set what minimum they can buy and things like that. So we went out there and we did an equity crowdfunding and On the one hand, it was to raise capital by selling shares at a certain amount. But the other way was to give all the employees who were unaccredited or otherwise didn't have a way of getting shares a way to have ownership in the company. And that's what we did. We opened it up so that everybody could have shares in the company because if you haven't got skin in the game, you're not going to care about it as much, okay? Especially if the owner's the only guy who can make money. I told you, I used to have companies that way, and I think people, my employees, resented that part about me, is that there was no way to get the keys to the kingdom, unless you were like my son or something who was going to inherit the company. It wasn't that kind of a company. It wasn't shared with the employees. That was a mistake. Um, now I realize everybody needs to have the upside. Everybody needs to have a piece of the game. And so, yeah, I believe everybody, every single employee, no matter how small, should have the opportunity to participate. And even the people that aren't employees, the general public, they should have the opportunity to participate in my fun experiment. You talk about giving equity to your employees being kind of a completely new thing. Was it that hard to do 15 or 20 years ago? Yeah, because let's let's take a very specific example, a $250 ownership in a company. Back in the day, if you wanted somebody to have 250 shares in your company and pay $250 for them, you were probably going to pay double that in attorney's fees to get all the paperwork drawn up, all the stuff done and things like that. I, as the way I understand it, people were not allowed to invest in companies unless they were accredited individuals, have a net worth of more than $2 million or whatever the rules are for being accredited. This new thing allows people who are unaccredited individuals to have stake in your company. And again, you can look it up on the internet. It's equity crowdfunding. The rules in the United States, I believe, changed recently, which allowed this to happen. And we never had a mechanism for doing it. These equity crowdfunding sites, they charge, let's say, 6%. Well, somebody buying 250 shares in your company at $250, they're paying 6%. It's like $15 for the shares to get issued to them. It is a very inexpensive way to issue and and um, control those shares. It's all being done online. They're collecting all the information. They're doing all the heavy lifting for you. And... 
You're just putting it out there like a Kickstarter, but instead they're getting real shares in your company. They get a K-1 at the end of the year if you're an LLC, and if you're a corporation, they get dividends when they happen. So this is a game changer, right? You might not be able to offer health plans or or company cars. This means that startups can compete for the the better people out there. I I consider it a game changer because to me, it kind of replaces the angel group because Angels are always were out there, you know, to get you at a certain phase to get to that next phase. And this equity crowdfunding is perfectly positioned to take companies that are at that early stage. You know, they got it. They got a tangible thing. It's not an idea. It's a thing. They actually have books now and they need that money to go to that next level. This allows you to go out there and just go to the general public and say, hey, here's my you know wonderful idea. What do you think of it? And will you give me the money to do it instead of you going after VC pitch after VC pitch? after VC pitch with, you know, all of your projections and this where all these sophisticated guys are tearing you apart. This is just regular people out there going, okay, I'll give you 250 bucks. I'll take a gamble on you. If you listen to the last episode of this podcast, the one about finding investments, you'll know that David is into equity crowdfunding in a big way. In fact, I feel like he's so fond of handing out minute shares in his business. I just hope he's kept at least a few of them for himself. But jokes aside, what he does demonstrate is that allowing employees access to shares, as well as the odd candy bar, makes them the beneficiary of their own hard work, and as a result, makes them work harder. This enterprising spirit is also encouraged by Dana. She owns Philly-based company Anna Ono, which makes lingerie for women who've undergone mastectomies. She's also the one we'll finish up with. Dana, like David, provides equity to her employees, but tells me that it's her fostering of the entrepreneurial drive within her workers that will pay them dividends in the long run. Investing in employees in a startup is a complex question um, because likely finances are tight, likely time is tight, people are stretched thin, uh, you all have a job to do, but you're a very small team, and investing back in your employees can mean a lot to the growth of your business. If you're in a position where you are looking at an employee that really is going to be there for the long run, I believe in supporting them and giving them um, percentages in your business. Uh, So there is buy-in and there is engagement in that. Um, I love that tech companies can have ping pong tables and kegs and free lunches and barbecues and picnics and all of these awesome things, but not every startup can really afford to do all of that. Uh, Those are costs that hit the bottom line. And to provide that work-life balance for your employees, even though they're working so hard, puts a lot of strain on a founder and an owner of a company because you're up against this, this new world of startups where these young college kids out of school, you know, want to go to Silicon Valley and are good sleeping on the floor to hit that next boom in the big tech market. But I'm in fashion and we run and function very differently than what a big tech boom and a tech buyout might look like, you know? So it, it is important to invest in your employees, keep them happy, 
keep them engaged, bring them along with you when you go to conferences or as a founder, you get invited to a lot of different networking events, uh, speaking engagements. And whenever somebody in your employee base can join you and be exposed to that world, I think it's really powerful because they make connections, they feel engaged, they feel like they're a part of the brand, they're a part of your mission, and they can represent you on that behalf. But they're also learning and growing professionally as well. And those are little tiny things that you can do to help invest in your employees and invest in their growth and invest in what their futures and their professions look like. When uh, you're in a city and you're surrounded by big companies, does it seem that sometimes you're just fighting a losing battle? Yes. I think as a startup, when you look at other corporations or other startups that are really well-founded and funded or are really well-funded, you feel like you're not doing enough. You feel like you can't provide the same level of what they can provide to their employees and that maybe working for you is not as attractive as it might be to go and work for one of these other startups or one of these other organizations. So you do feel like, what can I offer? What, what is enough? And you start to try to build your own, your own lane, but it's really, really tricky. I mean, I, we can't afford to take our five employees out to dinner and spend 500 or $600 for wine and cheese and steaks and all of these really incredible things that other companies can do. So you have to find ways to leverage that in a way that works for you. And um, that could be your work environment, that could be work from home days. You know, you really try to provide whatever it is that you can provide to keep people engaged and keep people happy because you just don't have the budget. You don't have the extra money floating around. In that case, when you're interviewing candidates, uh, do you think it's important to make sure they understand the potential of the company and how their role is gonna evolve in the future? It is 100% crucial to the success of not just your company, but to the success of the employee, that they understand fully what they are getting involved with. I really try to say to them, we will take out the trash. We are going to empty our own trash. We're going to clean our own bathrooms. We're going to sweep our own floors. Are you okay with that? And knowing that that is the expectation up front, that person has the choice to either say yes or no to the job offer. And sometimes you lose people because of that. Some people want to just show up to work and work from nine to five. Chances are that person is not a good fit for your startup because startups are 25-8 and there isn't a shutoff dial. You know, there is work to be done and everybody's got to be engaged to get that work done together. And when you're corporate America and you show up and, you know, we call it CTC, collect the check, then that's all you do. That's all you're required to do. But in a startup, you have to want more. That person as an individual almost needs an entrepreneurial spirit inside of themselves. They might not be ready to start their own business, but I hope that when I hire people, I'm hiring people that when Ana Ono sells or when we find an exit, that these people would have the fire in their gut and they have learned what they needed to learn to start their own ventures because those are the people you want in your space. You want people that are that hungry. You want people that are that passionate. And it's just a different personality. It's a personality trait. It's not good or bad if you have it or you don't, but those are the people that thrive in startups, not in corporate America. 
How difficult is it when people go? It's a challenge when your employees leave or are let go. And the challenge resides in everybody has a role and a defined place that they exist in when you're a small startup, especially when you're a handful of employees. It is something that you have to remember as the owner because I'm sure to other people that have been bosses out there, sometimes you think to yourself, oh, what what does that person do all day? What are they possibly doing all day that keeps them busy? They do a lot. You just forget about maybe how long it takes for you to run a report and analyze a report or how long it takes for you to create a graphic or a story on Instagram because you get so used to that person just doing that thing every single day that you stop forgetting that there's time involved and invested in that. And when you lose one of those key players, you have to pick up the slack and you have to go, oh my gosh, it's almost like a reality check for the founder or the boss, right? It's a reality check to say, oh man, now I remember how long it takes to process and ship orders. You know, this takes hours out of my day and now that's just more hours I have to work in the day. And so it's it can be very detrimental um, and can be a strain on the founder and the other members of your team while there's a lag when you're such a small, small staff. I suppose when you're a very small team, it affects the dynamic so much when, when people leave. There's this sense of mourning in the office when they go. I think when you're a startup that there is definitely a, a stress point when you see somebody leave. Um, and that could be not to mention if you have to let somebody go and you let somebody go because of their performance, you don't want your other members of your small staff to think, oh God, are we in trouble? Oh, am I next? Am I the next one that's to go? Am I doing a good enough job? And I just try to manage the expectations of everybody around through transparency and through honesty because they don't necessarily know all of the comings and goings that are happening behind the scene as you're running your business. But knowing that you have a plan and knowing that the decisions that you're making are to improve and make the business better is a very important conversation to have with the employees that are still there or maybe see somebody come and somebody go and somebody come again and somebody go again. And again, startup life is tough and you have to find the right fit, but you also have to find the right talent all mixed into one another. And that can be confusing to other employees when they see somebody come in for three months and then leave. And then somebody else comes in for three months and then leaves. Like, what, what's wrong, right? You always want to kind of ask yourself, what's wrong and what am I missing? And am I next? Or should I be looking for another job? Are we in trouble? Are we okay? And you have to be there to answer those questions with the utmost honesty, because that's what's going to keep your other employees engaged. How do you reassure them? I really keep an open, transparent point of view to my business. Everybody is here to make the business successful, or at least you hope that they are. And to know what maybe their actions are causing to affect that either positively or negatively is always important to communicate because you don't have layers and layers and layers to the onion where you can just do a layoff of 10 people and everybody's still okay. Like everybody is there for a purpose and they have to believe that they are. I prefer to endorse a, a culture of fear where people don't know where they're going to be fired or not day to day. In my experience, it makes them work harder. That's, that's a joke. <laughs> I like it. Coming up next time, being 
the first to market, you always constantly have a target on your back, right? There's always going to be people that are going to try to do what you're doing, but do it better. We don't research our competitors. We research our customers, right? We're more interested in what people want from us than we are what people want to take from us. Oh, I have products in the UK. Oh, I have products in this place and that place. And it's like, no, you don't. And then they'll come to me like, I purchased from your website. And I'm like, what website did you purchase from? And they'll show me, I'm like, that is fake. That's it for this episode of Making It Work. We would love to know what you think. So remember to rate this podcast and drop us a comment. It helps us out a lot. If you don't want to miss out on the next one, be sure to subscribe. Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Dana Donifrey, Liz Powers, David Patrick, Diana Gans, and Jean Foley for their advice. Making It Work is produced by Yoli Marguerite, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Koenigshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. <laughs>